Welcome to Anything Goes, the best geek and pop culture show broadcasting from Long Island, New York. I'm your host, Timothy Rooney, and we're back with a brand new episode. I try and cut down on the time between episodes, and I think I'm succeeding this week at least. And as you tell from the title, we're talking about JLA New World Order, the first arc in Grant Morrison's legendary run of the Justice League of America. Now, I can't do it alone. i got to have a co-host with me. And my co-host today is somebody um, who... We have been internet friends for a while, and he was kind of my partner of crime when it comes to my puns, because he's like one of the few people on the internet who likes them and tells me, no, keep going further with them. When the rest of the world cries no, he is the lone voice that says yes when it comes to bad humor, when it comes to my puns and everything. Bad bad humor? (laughs) It's all subjective. Ding. <laughs> uh, I, I should just stop it right there. I'm not going to top that joke tonight. I, it's just it stands it. Just walk away. Uh, Mr. Brent Clark of Fans of Borders and Marvel Squadcast. Brent, how are you doing this evening? I am doing great. I'm glad we finally got to work this out. You know, we've talked about it on more than one occasion. And finally, the stars have aligned and we are here and this is awesome. Yeah, I will be honest. Like I have, it's been my fault that I've not been more diligent of making the the uh, uh, schedules work because, like, I've tossed out a few ideas. Like, hey, uh, we could do this. And you're like, yeah, we could do that. And then it'd be on to me. Like, actually, be proactive and making a schedule. And I did not. So that's my bad. It is all good. We've we've uh, we've got something tonight. It worked out tonight. I'm I'm genuinely happy that we are able to do this. All right. So let's not dilly-dally anymore. Like I said, we're talking about JLA's New World Order. So let's jump into that right now. Okay. Now, Brent, I'll ask you, what what's your history with the Justice League and Grant Morrison specifically? Uh, Grant Morrison, huh, I'm not the biggest fan of his writing. Let's just put it out there right off right off the bat. When when he's on, I think he's flipping phenomenal. Unfortunately, I think sometimes he needs to be reined in and his reputation precedes him and when he is too far out there in the weeds, it just does not work for me. Thankfully, his JLA run, he was on. So you're saying you would prefer his writing before he started doing drugs. <laughs> I, I did not phrase it that way, but if that is the implication of what I said, then we will go with that. Well, he's been open with his usage <laughs> of hallucinogenics and everything. I mean, his his story about him visiting Kathmandu and his transcendental experience of seeing fifth dimensional beings and his trips trying like drug trips trying to reach that and never could uh, attain that kind of uh, perfection ever again did kind of fall in, bled into his writing for a little while. I'm not going to deny it. (laughs) You know, it's like, oh, man, were they on drugs when they wrote this? Well, okay, maybe he actually was. I I don't know. 
I'm going to let him make that call to whether or not to reveal if that's the case. But I've, I've heard some of those stories and I don't, I don't follow all his work. And nowadays I see, I'll just be honest. I love green lantern so much. And I found out he was taking over that book and I was so crushed. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to, it's Green Lantern. I got to try it. I, I'm like, okay, two issues in, I can't do it. Maybe I will come back later on a 99 cent sale on Comixology or on DC Universe, but I couldn't do it at the time. And right now I've got six or seven of them, you know, saved in DC Universe, but I haven't gone and read them yet. I want to, but I've got to really psych myself up to dive into Grant Morrison's modern day work. It's just not for me. And that's fair, but the real funny thing is that, like, his Doom Patrol stuff was done when he was sober, his Arkham Asylum when he was sober, so that's what, it is so curious to see, like, you read his early stuff and you imagine, like, oh, Nemo's had a good time writing this, but, like, no, like, that's stuff when he was, um, when he wasn't doing drugs, but then when he started doing drugs, like, I've tried reading The Invisibles twice, and, like, I've still, like, I've tapped out after a few issues, I'm like, all right, this is really strange. I don't care if the Wachowskis ripped this off to make the Matrix, but even I'm having a hard time keeping up with this. Yeah, I never even tried it. I'll be honest. I his some people you find out they're doing a project and it's an automatic buy or it's an automatic skip. And for me, he's pretty much a skip. And I, I am sorry to the Grant Morrison super fans out there. It's just not for me. And I'm a big, big believer that not everything has to be for you personally. And just practicing what I preach. He's not always for me, but again, the stuff he has done that I enjoyed, I really enjoyed his Batman run. For example, I've really liked, I I like his more straightforward superhero stuff for me. When he starts to go off the rails, it just doesn't work anymore. And his JLA book is in my opinion, for the most part, straightforward superhero stuff. And it to this day, is my favorite run of the Justice League. But with that in mind, have you? what was your introduction to the Justice League and what other um, errors have you read of the Justice League book? Oh, totally a big part of it is like, this was one of the earliest Justice League books that I had read. I don't remember when, how old I was or, you know, I, like, I don't remember everything about when I first read this book, but I can tell you, I came across it, the collection of these first four issues together. So my physical copy I have is actually a relatively small trade paperback of only four issues. And I bought it at the local mall at whatever bookstore they had at the time. I was probably there with my mom or my parents or something and was like, hey, I'm going to go look at the comic books while you go do all the boring shopping. And I found this one and you just look at this cover with the big seven and I don't know if obviously the Green Lantern and the Flash have changed of who's in the roles there. I don't know if there was ever a Justice League book, at least at the time, with that lineup prior to this run. But at the time, I had not seen it. And I have read, I've read several Justice League of America or Justice League International or Justice League Gear Up comics prior to this because there were several Justice League books and they all had some subset of these characters in it like maybe wonder woman and green lantern are in it or maybe flash and aquaman and martian manhunter are in it, but right but it which green lantern is it right uh, which flash is it even well that just depends on where you were in relation to the crisis but it 
to actually have these seven, Martian Manhunter, Aquaman, Green Lantern, Wonder Woman, Batman, Superman, and Flash. And on top of that, it's not only is it my favorite Flash, Wally West, but it's my favorite Green Lantern, who is one of my two favorite DC characters, period, of Kyle Rayner. And so seeing this cover of these seven just on here, I, I love the cover. It just drew me in, and I had to have it. And for me, like, I was blown away when I first read this story. And it's it's one that I've read, gosh, I've read it so many times. So they, they could just adapt this these four issues into a movie. Live action, animated, I don't care. I would be there day one for it, and I would be insanely excited if they did that. I don't, I don't know how extensive, to answer your question, my Justice League history was. I had read it. I had absolutely read Justice League stuff. But even like when, you know, th this is mullet Superman, right? So this is after his death. And obviously because Kyle Rayner's in it, so it's post, post Coast City being destroyed by Cyborg Superman. The Justice League when Superman died, I'm sorry, it's a bunch of B-listers, right? I didn't even know who all the characters were. They show up in in the, the Superman comics for the during the death story arc. It's like, I don't even know who you all are. Or for some of you, it's like the first time I'm actually seeing you, or maybe it's the second time I'm seeing you. And it's a bunch of B-listers. This book is not the B-listers. This is, this is your A-squad. This is your big guns. This is your dream team, whatever you want to call it. And man, did I take to it hard. So you're saying the Justice League book prior to this was, instead of being a who's who, it was a who's that? It, it certainly was for me. It certainly was for me. And that it is, you're not alone in that fact because, like, I have, like you, I've read a bunch of other Justice League eras as well. My personal favorite, other than this, would be Justice League International. I just love the, I know a lot of people don't like comedy books and everything, but I love the comedic tone of the JLI, as well as brain damaged Guy Gardner when he's super nice to everybody. And, like, because you think of Guy Gardner, he's the, he, he's a, uh, he stirs the shit. Like, he likes to uh, poke fun mm -hmm. to everybody and everything. Oh, yeah. And, and the one punch, the famous one punch that he <laughs> takes. I, I love the one punch. Don't, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, just, I feel bad for anybody that does not appreciate the one punch. Oh, yeah. And, 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 and even to the point that, like, Guy Gardner's like, personality or his reputation precedes him. I remember in the first season of Young Justice when they're recruiting new members to the Justice League and they turn to – uh, Hal Jordan and John Stewart, like, what about Guy Gardner? No, but mm -hmm. no, and they're like, and because they know what kind of Guy Gardner is, kind of a loose cannon and everything. But JLI would further open up into more characters because it became less and less of the original seven. Because even though Batman started in the group, and so did um, Black Canary, by the end of the day, it was kind of like, all right, you have a. Um, Metamorpho? No, maybe, maybe I don't think Metamorpho was in the group. He might have still been part of the Outsiders. Um, I could be mistaken on that. But you you had, you were right, like, B-listers by the time the Death of Superman came around. And apparently by the time this book came out, he shouldn't have been rocking the mullet. He should have had his short hair by this point. But that might have been a weird continuity thing amongst DC. Um, but my personal experience with Graham Morrison actually started with this. Uh, because I was at the time I was still listening to Fat Man on Batman, like most people, um, where he had that uh, I think it was three episodes dedicated to Graham Morrison, and that's how I became a fan of Graham Morrison. And somebody 
there's a YouTube channel called Wisecrack that breaks down the pop, the philosophies of pop culture entertainment. And he did an episode on Grant Morrison and broke down the reasons why I I gravitate to Grant Morrison's writing nine times out of ten. And I'll get into that near the near the end. But I've read stuff from Morrison. Whether starting from this, I've read his Doom Patrol uh, run, most of it. I love his Animal Man run. I, I need to finish that. Zenith, his stuff when he was doing when he was still with 2000 AD, hits on things that that are actually prevalent actually in this arc, and I'll get into those later. And his whole approach to things, like, yes, it is kind of esoteric, and sometimes it's really outside of the box. But at times, I, I do appreciate it. Like, but, but, like, there are times, like, yeah, I just like a straightforward superhero story. That's why I love Jeff Johns or Chuck Dixon and uh, Steve Englehart and everything. So it's like, okay, I can deal with, like, straightforward superhero stuff. Every now and then, I can pick up something written by Morrison or Gaiman or Alan Moore and get a little trippy when it comes to comic book writing. You know, I was I was trying to think of what other Morrison books I had read, and uh, one that came to mind that whenever this book comes up is always like 50-50, it feels like, a super hit or miss with people, which, hey, that's Morrison, so that fits. But is his new X-Men book. Did you read that one? No, but like, because, like, I don't know, like was that run prior to Whedon's run? Yes, it, it was. Um, it was... It was, but it was after the movies, the X Men movies, and they didn't full on take the the uniforms, if you will, that they used in the movies for this run. But they basically they basically took them, but they put a big giant yellow X on top of all of them. So they were a little more super superhero-y than what you get in the X Men movie, that first X Men movie, the first couple there. But they weren't. They were. They were not like the bright, colorful costumes that the X Men are known for. And I do remember, like, I like the story, but I don't like the visuals. And part of it was like the costuming. And I have read, but I don't know if it's accurate because it wasn't. It was from kind of a. I, I couldn't find the you know the primary sourcing on it, but I had read that that was Morrison's call. I don't know if that's true or not. But even there, it's like that's another run that I did enjoy his storytelling in that book. I liked his X Men again, his Batman or his Batman and Robin stuff. I enjoyed that that quite a bit. And of course, this it's just he has done so much. Like you mentioned, his Doom Patrol. I know that was a, a pretty heavy inspiration for the TV show. Well, the TV show it just didn't click with me. So it's like okay, I'm not going to go back and read the, his Doom Patrol run. But that's awesome for the fans of that run that the TV show kept the spirit so much and it's funny uh, well two things one um so you're saying in your description of these costumes they sound closer to the costumes of and at the end of x-men apocalypse well at the end of x-men apocalypse like they were in costumes right it, like they, i mean if you look up those costumes like cyclops has a a it is a Cyclops costume. It is. It's not quite like the Jim Lee designed one that we saw in the animated series of the X Men. But it was the last shot of Apocalypse is like the most costumes that we really see in the Fox X Men run across the board, other than the two Deadpool movies. And so it's just it's like if you think back to how Hugh Jackman looked in that black uniform, whatever you want to call it. And there was an outline of an X on it. Just imagine that X being yellow. And it was just their way of kind of trying to turn them into uniforms instead of superheroes. And you mentioned, was this before Whedon? Yes, because when Whedon came on, one of the things he did with his astonishing X-Men run with, 
uh, is it John Cassidy, I think, on the art there? They made a point of bringing back the costumes like it was a story element. And it was like, we need to be heroes again. And I I love that run from Whedon. I know Whedon is also a a hit and miss polarizing character, but I love that particular X-Men run as well. And I I do like the costumes. You know, when I'm, when I'm reading these superhero books, I want the costumes. So I don't know what else to tell you. I have no idea what you're talking about. Joss Whedon is never a polarizing figure amongst the comic book community. (laughs) Right. Right. My tongue is firmly in cheek, ladies and gentlemen. Don't worry. Um, But going back, my next thing I wanted to say is that speaking of his Doom Patrol, I remember when I bought my camera from the uh, camera store in in New York City. And, like, I'm, like, I have, like, this $2,000 camera in this plastic bag, and I have it wrapped around my wrist. And so anybody's going to come and try and steal it from me is going to have to take my arm with it. And so I end up getting back to Penn Station, so I have to take the train back out to here on Long Island. I am on, like, the last train that is technically considered rush hour. And so the entire train is cramped, but I have my backpack with me, so I have some books to read. So I end up pulling out the Doom Patrol trade paperback, and I'm starting to thumb through that as I read as we get across. And the guy next to me, I guess, start feeling a little uncomfortable with all the strange visuals of a Grant Morrison's Doom Patrol that I was reading. <laughs> Imagine so, that. Yeah, like, like this weird woman with no head and like and like several breasts and everything, and she's inside our tarot card, and we're inside it, and it's like, okay, this is very strange here. I think I made the, the gentleman next to me a tad uncomfortable, so I ended up putting it away because I just read the room right there. Yeah, that's I, – I won't lie. I was about to say I wonder how that looked to other people, but oh, no, you figured out how that looked to other people. Yeah, because, like, it's three of us in the little three-seater and everything, and we're kind of, like, all, like, the, the person all the way in was a little bit bigger, so he was taking up more than his seat, and so I'm kind of leaning over to my left into the gentleman's to my left seat, and so all of us kind of, like, lay, leaning to our left here, and I'm like, all right, I'm going to close the book. All right, I'll pull something else out, something that's a little less a little less controversial that we we'll have to deal with for this 90-minute uh, train ride. Yeah, and then, uh, oh, just, don't you hate it when you spend thousands of dollars on equipment, but you have to get it home? <laughs> You're never so nervous as those moments. Oh, because it was like, it was a 20-minute walk from the store to the station and everything. And, but the, 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 funny, the real kicker of the, the, of the situation is I was there a week prior to go check the camera out. So I go into the city. I left work early to get in there so I can get a, a decent ride home. I get to the store like, oh, it's in our used uh, warehouse. We don't have it here in the store. You got to come back another day. And I'm like, I came in to the city to see it. And I'm like, I probably should have called ahead, but. Yeah, that stinks. Yeah, so like that's why I was like, but but that's why the following week when I came there, I just kind of, I took a glance at the camera. I was like, it works. There's no dings or anything. I'm like, yeah, I'll take it. Like, I'm not going to haggle prices right now. No, you've already made such an effort to get to it at that point. It's in your hand. It's going to be awfully hard to put back down. Exactly. <laughs> the only thing, the only bad thing is now, right now, I want to kind of upgrade to its next successor and everything. But I'm just like, I'm saying to myself, am I saying that just because I want a new camera or do I really need the new camera right now? It's, it is kind of like that buyer's conundrum I'm finding myself in right now. I understand that logic, like that that dilemma. I'm an Apple fan. I get the whole, do I need the shiny yet new, or do I just want the shiny new? I, I get you. I hear you. But, but that's also a bad thing, though, because Apple is great at making the shiny thing, the next iteration of it, even shinier somehow. 
They are. They are. And hey, they just put out a new iPad Pro a few weeks ago. I have been I have been putting money away to put towards this for a long time. I was good to go, ready to pay for it. And then I'm reading it. And I'm like, uh, it's too much. It's just it's not enough of a jump over what I have now. This is it would be a bad buy. It just it would not be worth it, and I I was like, man, that's such a bummer. I've been looking forward to this this whole time, and then it's just a minor spec bump. And okay, a spec bump is great, but I'll wait for the next one. Right, that's the same thing with the camera I'm looking at. I'm, mm-hmm. I, the camera I have is the Canon C100 Mark One. The Mark Two um, still doesn't shoot 4K everything, and it's pretty much the same body except for the LCD screen is a little is is fully articulate everything it's got a built-in microphone everything although and color silence is a little bit better but i'm just like if i want my next camera do i want it to be shooting in 4k or not do i want to be future-proofing my footage and everything these are the kind of questions i think to myself when i'm really bored and have a lot of time on my hands hence why i was looking at cameras all day i hear you i hear you but uh, one last tangent before we get into the meat of the matter. Uh, I was going to send this question into fans, but I wonder if we could set a, a ridiculous Patreon goal for Squadcast uh, Media that if you raise enough money that you would get a Apple tramp stamp tattoo. <laughs> okay, that's funnier than you realize because I, I, I work with a bunch of Apple fans, right? Like we – all of our work devices are MacBook Airs. As everybody has work issued iPhones, and several people have their personal iPads and stuff as well. And one of my coworkers definitely once said that I love Apple so much that I have an Apple tramp stamp. <laughs> oh, so I'm, I'm not going to confirm, confirm or deny whether or not such a thing is there, but you would not be the first person to bring that up amazingly. Just imagine you, you ride to town, you execute all the Windows 10's computers and leave, like, before the sound disappears. <laughs> that would be nice sometimes, if only, if only. Uh, like my co-host Mike, he, like, the bane of his existence is Windows 10, and he's, he wishes to God he didn't have to deal with it, but he prefers PC than Mac, so that's why he's, he's caught into a Catch-22 situation. Yeah, that, that is rough, um... <laughs> that's that's rough when you're not happy with the the version that is the current version that is getting uh, the security updates and getting the new features and stuff. And but you don't like it? Oh, that's a problem. Um, thankfully, right now I don't have that issue. Well, that's good. But like the the, the title of the episode says, we're talking about the JLA New World Order. It's a four issue arc, and the kind of the rundown the first issue titled them uh, the. It was cover date of January 1997, but thanks to Mike's Amazing World, the on-sale date is actually November 6, 1996. Cover price is $1.92, uh, and the credits are writer Grant Morrison, penciler Howard Porter, inker John Dale III, letterer Ken Lopez, and colors Pat uh, Guerreri. Gary, I That's poor pronunciation on my part. And the synopsis of this issue is a group of aliens call themselves the Hyper Clan come to Earth. Professional, uh, professing to be galactic savers, have witnessed their home suffer great ecological destruction. They seek to prevent the same thing happening to, on other worlds. The general populace of Earth immediately uh, ingratiates themselves to the Hyper Clan, but the members of the superhero com- community have concerns over the team's generosity. To demonstrate their pledge to heal the Earth, the Hyper Clan uses the powers to turn barren Sahara Desert into a veritable Eden. The Hyper Clan also lends their power to cause uh, law enforcement. However, 
Instead of incarcerating criminals, they simply execute them by support of the general public. Before long, though, the hyperclan begins to take an offensive action against those who threaten their goals, specifically the Justice League. The hyperclan ambushes the League aboard their satellite, completely tearing through the sides of their structure. They escape in shell pods and... Uh, the shell pods are useless, so Metamorpho uses his entire body to jettison the remaining members of the the team out of there. The League members who survive the planet uh, fall to Earth. They all suffer injuries. Metamorpho is rendered inert, possibly dead. Afterwards, Protex, the leader of the Hype Clan, erects a watchtower structure in icy plains in Antarctica and named it Zon Zor. Earth's potential superheroes meet up outside the secret sanctuary in Rhode Island, where they see a news report at WGBS praising Protex. Realizing the Hyperclan are a threat, they discuss new strategies. Batman arrives and tells them to prepare for war. So, Brent, your feelings on the first issue of this arc? Well, right away, there's this, what I think is pretty funny gag where, you know, the president's talking to his, his cabinet and they're like, hey, uh, where's our superhero person that's supposed to be with us right now as these aliens are showing up? They're like, oh, Firehawk? Uh he, she, whatever, called in sick, no powers, right? Like two pages later, three pages later, something like that. They're like, oh, by the way, fire called in sick. She lost her powers. And I just right, I don't think that's funny right out of the gate. And I'm like, oh, that is eh, kind of a B-list Justice Leaguer there. But, hey, I know that one at least. Um, you know, it, it's this issue to me, a big part of what it's doing is to get that previous incarnation of the Justice League out of the way. It's like... We're going to move them out so we can bring in our big guns and have the big guns actually take the stage. And I would say it ultimately accomplished that goal pretty successfully. Um, you you know, during the synopsis, you talk about there's the point where the hyper clan, it, you start to see that they start murdering supervillains, right? Did you catch when you're rereading it the other day who some of those supervillains were? Apparently Wolverine and Doctor Doom is amongst them. Wolverine and Doctor Doom, yep, it's very, pretty pretty clearly there, and I I I always like those kind of gags when they do that when DC does something like that or Marvel does something like that in one of their books. I always think that's fun. So even even back then, I was like, ah, how often do you get to see these characters actually interact? But that's pretty cool. Oh, uh, definitely. I mean, I think this is prior to Morrison's involvement with Marvel. Um, I like. I didn't know if he did anything with Marvel prior to his X Men run in the early two thousands. Um, I would have to verify, but to my knowledge, he had not worked with them yet. Okay, because I know like like writers like Jeff Loeb, he went back and forth between a good part of the nineties, going back and forth between Marvel and DC. Like he was not, mm-hmm. he wasn't like he didn't homestead with one publisher or the other. He would ride both sides of the fence, as it were. Yeah, Loeb definitely had stuff for both sides. I mean, he he's done a ton. Um, super quick Google search is implying to me that sure enough, that new X Men book is Morrison's first first real work with Marvel. Um, so not, I mean, this, that's just a funny gag there. Uh, you know, I really like the uh, when we see the Hyper Clan. I like the character designs. They're all so different, and I, I mean, some of it is like '90s at its finest when you look at it, but. I just I really like the dif- different designs of the characters, especially especially Protex the leader. You know, it, the gold look that he has to him and stuff. I just I really I really think it's they're a striking visual, and I like how they you know they show the different uses of their powers and stuff as they're attempting to revive the Sahara Desert, and or I, maybe I shouldn't say attempting. I mean, it succeeded. It just 
ultimately doesn't necessarily the concern is is it going to hold but really clever use really cool characters designs this was one of those things when i first read it that i i now know that these characters were created for this story i didn't know that at the time i was i mean i read as many comics as i could but it wasn't as easy to get your hands on them as it is today with you know, Marvel Unlimited and DC Universe and programs like that. And so to me, they were new to me. So one, and obviously they were new to Superman, but I didn't know if they were new, period. One way or the other, though, right out of the gate, I'm like really impressed by this this team of what appear to be superheroes at this point. Yeah, and I, I have to imagine that the Hyperclan has to be a satire of Image Comics and their character designs. I think so, too, but I, for me, I think it works really well here. All right. I mean, I don't think it's like – like, if you are, like, in the known, you are a aware of Image Comics. I think you kind of get the, the joke of it. But it isn't, like, so blatant and on the nose that, like, everyday layman will recognize it. I think it's – I think, though, like, one of the greatest things or consistent things, I should say, that Graham Morrison loves to write about is writing about comic books and the art of comic book storytelling – and I'll get into that a little bit. Let more sum up the, my final thoughts. The entire arc. And another thing is like all these individual issues are. It, this is a very sci-fi based arc. So all the individual issues are named after sci-fi movies. This one starring them is named after the movie Them, which is 1954, where giant um, sized mutant ants are trying to take over the world. And and like as silly as that sounds, it's actually. It, you watch it as a kid, it's actually pretty creepy. You see a, a giant ant eat a sheriff at one point. You're like, ah, that's that's pretty disgusting. You see a ribcage and a ant's mandibles at one point. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I find it, it curious that Superman's immediately suspicious of the visitors. That's something I found kind of odd, that you think Superman would be the first person to have kind of open arms and an open handshake to whatever people who would be arriving on Earth. Well, I... I don't know if I would go suspicious so much as cautious, but I would say you got to remember where he's at in his in the continuity right now, and this isn't that long after Coast City, and so the last time aliens came down and said we're here to help, we're going to do things, and they destroyed one of the biggest cities and the hometown of one of his friends and allies. So I, I wouldn't blame him for being a little extra extra cautious at that point that's fair and i love how even like just in like quick panels that there's already even from art to an actual action that the characters do it sets them up perfectly like wally forgot to pick up the dry cleaning for his girlfriend he's sitting on the couch and like the next panel is like he's there like the 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 dry cleaning's there and he apologizes for leaving it there just showing how fast he is he's able to go there and back in just one panel and then when you see John Jones watching the broadcast on TV, in the in the background you see all the he's got VHS copies of famous UFO uh, centric uh, stories, including Alien Autopsy, which was considered real at the time. They thought it was a real Alien Autopsy that made its rounds in uh, the early 1990s. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And of course, your boy Kyle Rayner, uh, right, right there at the art table, as he so often was in those days. And it's so curious here because whenever I think of Kyle Rayner, there's one panel that automatically comes to my mind. And it's from this issue here, and it's when the power goes out in the watchtower, and he's kind of 
he's kind of like bent legged and he's like charging up his ring and he's got his, his fist in front of him. It looks like he's like charging up his wrist as if he's got the power glove on or something. And like that's mm-hmm. the image that always comes mm-hmm. to my mind when I think of Kyle Rayner. Sure, and this is again so relatively soon after after Coast City that he's still learning how to use his powers. And so like for him it's still more of an effort that he has to put into the ring to make it do its thing. So you say it looks like he's charging up his glove. That's probably exactly what he's doing there. Right. And even the fact that when we get his his inner monologue saying that using the ring is trying to give up cigarettes. Like that's the amount of energy it needs to do. Um, and I remember it was, um, I think it was Green Lantern Reborn, uh, the when Jeff Johns brought uh, Hal Jordan Rebirth. back. Rebirth. Rebirth, excuse me. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a moment where Oliver Queen. Uh, Oliver Queen Green puts an arrow in it and he exactly fires it. And he's, like, he's like, I feel wiped because of that. Like, yeah, it takes a lot of energy to do something. Yeah, he, he basically is physically exhausted after uh, generating one arrow construct. And he says is that, in that book, he's like, is that what it's like? And I don't remember the exact quote, but Kyle says something to the effect of every time. I mean, that's like a, that's one of my two standout moments in the entire book. The other one is that... The re- and, like, Batman gives Hal Jordan such a, a hard time coming back into the fold because he thinks, oh, he could still turn – he could turn back into Parallax and could be potentially dangerous to everybody. And I love how people call him out. Like, the reason why Batman has a problem with Hal is because Hal's not afraid of him. Hal's mm-hmm. never been afraid of anything. And what is the one thing that Batman needs to be p- considered powerful? It's fear. And yeah. Hal never yeah. feared him. Exactly, and but you know what's what's great about this arc is we see that scary Batman in this, like we see him turn that fear onto the villains throughout this arc, and you're absolutely right. And that that Green Lantern rebirth, it's such a great story. And I, when you were talking about him charging up the ring, I I also was thinking about the Green Arrow reference there, and obviously this is however many years in 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 the real world before that story was ever even considered, but. It's such a cool moment, and Jeff Johns, I mean, he was, Jeff Johns is a master at mining the past for future stories, and I don't know if he, I got to assume he read this run at some point, and maybe had that kind of thing, that kind of image for Kyle in his his head as he was writing the lanterns. But don't you know Jeff Johns knows nothing about DC characters? Oh, you stop that nonsense. Get out of here. <laughs> hey, that's what the internet tells me. Jeff Johns doesn't know what he's doing. So The, the internet's full of crap. I'm just going <laughs> to let you in on a secret. <laughs> uh, but it, it, you're right that Batman definitely uses fear throughout this story. And even though Batman's only in a few panels of this uh, individual issue, he how reporter draws him like, um, what was it, uh... Kelly was a Puckett or no 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 it's Kelly Jones. It's Kelly Jones is the artist, right? Uh yes, I believe that's correct. Who draws right. the very I'm exaggerated sure. poses? If we're of wrong, that. someone will let us know. Yeah, do you know actually, do you know let me just. I'm gonna cover my patoot right now, thanks to Google here. Um, Kelly Jones, Batman. There we go. God damn it, Chrome. Why do you want to go slow now? This is not the time for you to be slow. Uh, yes, it is Kelly Jones. Because um, Kelly Jones is known for very theatrical Batman, where like his cape is like 30 feet long. 
and he's got very dramatic poses when it comes to his his stenciling. And I find that kind of curious that Howard Porter kind of adopts that in this few panels here. You know, those those panels, the, the last page of the book of issue one actually has one of my favorite Batman panels, like, of all time. And at the top, Superman said, like, the, this new league has all been kind of coming together, right? Minus Aquaman. He doesn't join until the next issue. But minus Aquaman, they've all been joining together. And they're saying, hey, Batman's not here yet. And then he shows up. Yeah, I've actually been here for, you know, an hour. And I've just been doing my Batman thing, spying on you guys. And Superman says, strange, I didn't hear your heartbeat. And there's just this little, almost to himself, though, of course, Superman could hear it. Batman says, huh, gadget worked. <laughs> that has stuck with me forever. Forever. Because, you know, Morrison definitely helped to popularize the bat God, the, the Batman who with enough preparation time, like if you've ever heard the preparation time argument for Batman, like this is the era it really comes from. And that to me is just a sign of it. And I think maybe eventually that kind of gets taken too far, but right here, that's just like the first example in this of Batman, just using his intelligence to achieve an objective. In this case, he makes a gadget to stop his own heartbeat from being able to be heard by Superman. Pretty impressive. Definitely. And I mean, like, I guess it could go too far that Batman was prepared to be thrown through the time and space and figure a way back to present day. Maybe that could be considered. All right. I don't think Batman would be prepared for that just such an occasion, even though that does happen. And he's he is able to make it back to the present. Um, but that is it. You're right. That is laying the foundations of what kind of Batman he would be. I mean, I I, I personally think that Batman is also fit like sixty percent preparation and also like forty percent improv. And he's like, all right, he's, he needs to adapt in any scenario that he finds himself in. For better or for worse, um, but it is fun, like because you you think of like Batman and Batman Earth One, where none of his gadgets work, and Johns wrote that specifically. Like this is like this is like day one Batman, where everything is going awry. It is curious to see the diametrically opposed iterations of Batman. Yeah, absolutely. It, it is such a different a different take on the character, but this isn't rookie Batman. This isn't year one Batman. This is Batman in his prime. For sure. And so we move on to the second issue, The Day the Earth Stood Still, named after the 1951 movie of the same name. And it was cover date of February 1997, on sale date of February, uh, December 4th, 1996, cover price uh, 195. The credits are writer Grant Morrison, penciler Howard Porter, inker John Dell III, letterer Ken Lopez, and colorist Pat Gary, Gary, I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm butchering this gentleman's name. Uh, the synopsis is, the Hyper Clan continues to construct a watchtower of sanctuaries across the globe. News crews flock to the scenes, astounded by the grandeur of each citadel. The JLA determines the Hyper Clan are using some sort of mind control transmitter broadcasting an anti-JLA hysteria amongst the masses. Greenland tries to locate the transmitters with his ring, but cannot find anything. The Martian Manhunter presumes that the Watchtower base are, are key to stopping them and, and splits the team into pairs to take down each Watchtower. One of them flies off to find Aquaman and they end up facing the Hyperclan shapeshifter Fluxus. His teammate uh, Tronix show up to lend, a, lend him a hand. Tronix pro, pro, projects a twin energy rays from her eyes and takes Wonder Woman down. 
Green Lantern, meanwhile, reluctantly teams up with the Flash. The Flash isn't thrilled about working with his rookie, quotation marks, Green Lantern. They go to the desert to face off against Armac, uh, Zenturion, and Zoom. Huh, Zoom as in Z-U-M, man. Z-U-M, not Z-O-O-M. Above the Earth, Martian Manhunter meets with the Hyper Clan leader Protex. Protex tries to convince the Manhunter that the people of Earth fear him and should join the Hyper Clan. Elsewhere, Superman, Batman encounter Amortal and Primade. Primade keeps Superman distracted while Amortal teams tears through the Bat Plane. The ruins of the plane crash are into the ground and Batman is nowhere to be found. Superman manages to defeat Primade, but Protex shows up with a handful of kryptonite weakened by the radiation. Superman collapses. The Hyper Clan bring the defeated leaguers to Zon Zor. So, Brent, your feelings on issue two. You know, um, I want to mention real quick, I feel like today, seeing Zonzor, I would have known what we were dealing with here, but at the time I didn't. Like, it didn't mean anything to me. Um, I, I have one little hang-up with this issue, even though it works out. They talk about they talk about Martian Manhunter and what a master strategist he is, right? And he's the one who basically came up with the teams that they use and split off. And when he does that, he did not do these teams evenly. There were six people, and they did not reference, hey, you're going to meet up with Aquaman. Wonder Woman wasn't even expecting Aquaman, necessarily. I mean, maybe they had an educated guess just because of where that battle was taking place, but he just said, hey, Diana, you go off on your own. I'm going to go over there with Flash and Green Lantern. So at the time when they were leaving, it was she went by herself, and then they were taking three of them together to this other thing. Of course, that was before John left to go meet up with Prodex. Maybe, maybe I could headcanon it away that he wanted Green Lantern and Flash paired up together because he knew he would have to step aside. But I always found it odd that he sent Diana off on her own there without even a line of dialogue. Hey, Aquaman's going to meet you there. Yeah, it is kind of like a, a leap there. And, like, I guess you could hand, head candidate that, like, knows that Diana could take care of herself. Probably better than the Flash and Green Lantern together, that he he has that Definitely. much confidence. But you're right. It is kind of like, even she kind of says, like, okay, that she's kind of going off by herself. Like, all the boys get to hang out and I'm going by myself kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, it, it is Wonder Woman. So she'll be fine. It just, it always kind of struck me as odd. And then, of course, you know, if we if we jump to uh, the Flash and Green Lantern fight with Zoom, or specifically Flash with Zoom, one, I like that they used a different name, take on the word Zoom, but I like the way that he defeats Zoom in this book, that we, when we, actually, you know what, that's the next issue, isn't it? Yeah. I'm getting ahead of myself, then let's just step aside for that. Forget that, well, I'm going to pause that moment. We'll come back to that. Then I want to mention Batman and Superman. And when Batman's plane goes down, they basically say, eh, whatever, he's human, just ignore it, you know? And they actually give us our first hint at what's going on here, and Protex says, best not risk the flames. If he survives the crash, the cold will kill him. And so he's, he's at this point, he's like, I'm not going to worry about Batman. It's like, oh, that was your fatal flaw right there. If you take it out Batman, you, your whole thing, you win. I think that's the whole point of Morrison's take on Batman that he is a man amongst gods and yet he's the one they should you should underestimate the least because he's had to overcome the fact of not having superpowers to walk amongst them and still 
have them on their have them on their toes at all times. And I think it's the grandiose overconfidence of the hyper clan that, like you said, leads to their downfall. Yeah, and you're right with Batman having to overcome it and thinking about like when when he's talking with Superman and he's just in the Batplane and he tells Superman something like, I don't I don't have the luxury of superpowers, so I don't wear bright colorful costumes that make me a target up front, right? And that's when you when you think about it, it's like, yeah, but you put Robin in a bright, colorful costume. But I get what your point is, regardless. Well, yeah, he's supposed to take all the fire, and, and Batman takes um, it takes down the goons. That's how it goes. Yeah, Robin. Robin is the bait, and Batman gets all the credit. Oh yeah, that's why I love. It. Well, I think it was Tiny Toons where they had um, their version of like. Young Daffy Duck and Young Porky Pig is like their own versions of Darkwing Duck and Robin, and they were just like, "Okay, all right, my my uh, brightly colored sidekick, you're the one I'm supposed to take all the attention in the gunfight, and I take down the bad guys." And Porky Pig's like, "Wait, wait, 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 what?" And they immediately run off into cry into a crime alley and everything. So it's like, it's clearly a joke about it, and that's why I think that's why a lot of people have, could have issues of Batman putting a a child into a dangerous scenario like okay how can you morally justify that but i think i think audiences can deal with that now since like you had like you think of the tony stark and peter parker relationship that we've gotten in the mcu where iron man's willing to who trusts a teenager to be in a a very fearful scenario and think knows he's going to be okay i think audiences nowadays could get on board with that of a batman and robin in live action at least i hope so anyway well, I hope so too because I would love to see Robin in live action in the movies. Yes, we've got him on Titans and he's great there, but in the movies itself. And I love that you just referenced Tiny Toons. So well done on that. I I mean, like there is a certain age gap. I realize that if I could go into any room and start singing, "We're tiny, we're toony," and imagine some <laughs> people will finish the line, and I'm a little like, loony, <laughs> and then I'm like, "All right, that's gonna be stuck in head for weeks. I'll see you later." Yeah, yeah I appreciate I might... that. Thanks. <laughs> I mean, like, I think I should just do that the next time on a job interview. I should just break that out and it's like, like, what kind of skills can you bring to this company? And I start singing that to see what happens. Um, but we've only been dealing with six of the car of the characters of the league and this is when we finally get introduced to Aquaman and this is obviously post Peter David Aquaman because he still has a hook for a hand and I love how he, Aquaman is taking himself so seriously here and even uh, Diana calls him on his shit that he feels like he's all high and mighty and doesn't want to deal with anything with the league he just wants to deal with the seven seas and that's that yeah, stop posturing, Arthur. The sea is my responsibility. What a ridiculous thing to say. I love that she can just call him out like that. Oh, of course. And I have to. I, I laughed because I, I. I know it's supposed to be not like we're not supposed to be like oh Aquaman can talk to fish, but to seeing dolphins have speech bubbles will always make me laugh. Just seeing a human having a conversation with dolphins will make me laugh. Not in a bad way. I think it's I think it's wonderful. I mean, I wish I could talk to dolphins like that and, and hold conversations. But I just find it really funny, like just seeing speech bubbles against uh, uh, fish you don't hear speak that often. Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely different. And I mean, they kind of play on that in this in this book as well, uh, throughout this series as well of Aquaman and the joke talking to just a fish. Right. 
And and speaking of like other members of the league, do you think Wally's too harsh on Kyle this early into his tenure at the league? No, uh, because and I I mean I read all of this green this era and Connor Hawk the Green Arrow of this time period. You know who we will meet in the Justice League book. He shows up in a later past this arc. Like Wally was struggling with his mentor's friends being off off the board. And so, like, you got to remember that Barry Allen and Hal Jordan were super close friends. And, you know, on TV, it's it's Barry and Oliver. And they definitely had their connection as well, but it's really it was more Barry, Hal, and Oliver in the books. And so part of the animosity, if you will, that Wally shows towards Kyle is maybe it's i'm going to call it misguided because it's out of a misguided sense of the loyalty that he has still towards Hal Jordan. He thinks that Kyle just fell into it. He's nothing special. He doesn't deserve this honor to have this job. And yeah, Kyle did fall into it and he was, you know, at the time thought to be nothing special. That was kind of the point of his character. But that that was really where the animosity started was because of the Hal Jordan connection there. Wally obviously looked up to Hal because Uncle Barry looked up to Hal. That's fair then. And I do love the I, I do enjoy one of the zingers where Wally says, I've been waiting forever and Hal lands, he's like, Yeah, three minutes and even Wally lifts up his his uh sleeve just to look at his watch right there. And I'm just wondering like think just being Uber nerdy right here, what kind of watch could withstand the kind of velocity that the flash gets on a daily basis like what's that what the hell is that made of it's inside his suit it's protected by the speed force speed force aura that protects him from like the friction and stuff we did just get super nerdy but i'm gonna allow it (laughs) and i i love like every issue in this arc here ends on such a great cliffhanger and i love the final panel of this book here where it's protex dragging suit an incapacitated superman off to their watchtower but even superman even though he's he's weakened almost to the point of death he's still trying to fight by digging his hands into the rubble and just trying to put um friction against him and it's just dragging the all the soil with him like ah that's just a really great image to go out on yeah you know it's this is your big you're i mean it's superman and he's totally utterly defeated and batman as far as we know is burning to death in this wreckage. If he's not already dead, he's going to be soon, or at least that's what they want want us to think. Yeah, and, and you think, like, wow, the whole league got taken down in the second issue. Like, how can they come back from this? And that's when we move on to issue three. And issue three, cover date was March 1997, on-sale date of January 3rd, 1997, cover price $1.95, the same uh, credits of the last two issues. And the synopsis is this, that... War of the Worlds, based on the nineteenth, well, based on the H. G. Wells novel of the same name in eighteen ninety-eight, which is that was adapted into feature-like movies in nineteen fifty-three and two thousand five. But the synopsis of this issue is: Batman did not perish in the bat in the bat plane, as the Hyperclan believes. In fact, he's counted on the Hyperclan's arrogance and willingness to dis- dis- dismiss him in order to infiltrate their citadel, Zonzor. Having analyzed their powers, Batman knows who they are and their true secrets. Elsewhere, the Flash continues to fight up against the villainous super speeder, super speedster, Zoom, 
They zip around from China to South Dakota, but Flash taps into the Speed Force to edge him out, pulling an infinite mass for, out from the field, and he dex zooms, knocking him clear across the country. Elsewhere, Green Lantern deals with the armored Armek. Armek believes that Kyle Rayner's Green Lantern ring is vulnerable to the color yellow, like other rings. However, Kyle's ring has no such restriction. However, he and he demonstrates by creating a, a manga-inspired power armor to pummel Armtech into the ground. Having powerless up Zoom, the Flash races out to help Green Lantern. Although Armtech is down, and they now have to deal with the shield slaying Centurion, Centurion throws his disc shield at the heroes, but the Flash catches it and sends it right back at him. They discuss to strike Centurion in the jaw that momentarily sh- that stuns him. Flash and Green Lantern race to uh, Zonzor, where they discover the rest of the League has been taken captive. Batman and Martian Manhunter, however, are nowhere to be found. Analyzing the Hyperclan's motion chambers, they lean. They learn that there's advanced in- invasion fleets personal around the Earth's atmosphere, but they're hiding in a pocket uh, hyperspace. This is how they would avoid satellite detection and ambush them at the Watchtower. The Hyperclan soon finds out the Flash and Green Lantern are are there, and they take them out. All captured League members are placed inside this Martian device known as the Flower of Wrath, kind of like a big flower that that's very deadly in its its capabilities of killing people. The Hyperclan members a mortal senses something amiss amongst uh, around and goes to investigate. In the lower levels of the Citadel, he encounters Batman. When a mortel fails to report back to Protex, he sends out the other Hyperclan members to find him. They locate Bound, Batman and surround him, but Batman knows who the truth the truth about the invaders now. They're actually Martians. Although they are incredibly powerful, they have a great weakness, fire. Having already doused the room with gasoline, Batman strikes up a single match and sets the entire chamber alight. When Protex learns that the simple human is to be at the Hyperclan, he flies into a rage. He transmits the signal into the Martian Armada, tucked away in hyperspace, ordering them to begin the invasion of Earth. So, your feelings on issue three. I love this one. Um, what I was about to uh, mention earlier was when Flash defeats Zoom, th- during the battle, like when the when they first start showing it, there's this guy with like a pot, right? Like just a homemade pot that he had made, presumably. And he drops it as they run by. And then, you know, one, two, three, four pages go by, during which Wally busts out one of the, the Barry Allen patented flash facts where he uses, you know, some basic science, if you will, uh, to kind of tell the reader what he's doing. Super speeds past Zoom, comes up behind him, lays him out with one punch, and then he runs back and he catches the pot that the guy dropped four, four pages ago. Just showing you kind of how fast they were actually moving, how much like inner monologue that Wally had during this time. I think it's just a really cool way to show the speed at which that that battle was taking. Yeah, and, and I love the punctuation of it, saying that like Linda would love this pop. But I don't have time to haggle for price words right now, so I'm just going to leave it as is. Mm-hmm. And you're right. I love the flashbacks here, and I love that how he's explaining how fast he is. And you can imagine that it's probably. It's probably so quiet except for Wally's breath. Like that's the only sound that that can probably be going right now, and it's just his inner thoughts is going running a mile a minute, even more so. And I love like how when Zoom is taken out by that one punch, and he's flying back at, at such velocity, he covers seven miles a second. Yeah, that's that's escape velocity, by the way. Flash fact. <laughs> and. Maybe it's just like juvenile or whatever, but the Zenturian who's taken the 
his little dish to the face right there. I don't know why I laughed really hard at him being knocked out by his own weapon right there. Well, part of it is like how nonchalant Wally is when he just flings it back. Like he's not even looking at the guy when he chucks it back at him. He's looking at Kyle to talk to him. And they're berating each other. Like they're like that. They're, that's mm-hmm. how different, indifferent they are to the situation right now. And they they don't perceive him to be a threat at that moment. And then, of course, this book has one of like the most iconic Batman moments of all time. At least in my opinion, it is. And that is when you know you get Batman's inner monologue. Hey, I. They didn't come after me in the fire. That that was like the final clue I needed. They'd given me all all I need to know. And he actually, uh, Amortal goes after him, and Batman takes him down. Right, and we don't see it. It happens off panel. He takes him down. He strings him up, and he leaves a note on it that just says like I know I know your secret. Right, and he freaks out more members of the Hyper Clan, and you see him kind of spreading out this stuff in a circle. Like it almost looks like he's gonna try like a magic spell or something like he's putting dropping the circle down they don't tell you what it is and it's not the way it's colored in my I, I think it kind of obscures what it was and he's suddenly surrounded by these three superhuman beings that throughout these last couple issues they've made a point of telling us are in a superman level weight class right and that's when you get this amazing moment when he says you're martians i know the thing that takes away your powers fire and you know, they start to freak out. Oh, I know what that smell is. And he lights it up and just looks at them all and says, okay, my turn. Ready when you are. Love it. One of the most famous Batman moments when he takes down three people with the same abilities as the Martian Manhunter. Fantastic. Oh, definitely. I, I mean, it's like, I think they even, they did a moment similar to this in one of the animated movies saying like where he was threatening Martian Manhunter that where, Batman says, I have a $50,000 piece of rock for the man in Krypton. All I need is a nickel for a pack for a, a pack of matches for you. Yeah, that was, uh, oh my gosh. It's adapting the Tower of Babel storyline. I'm forgetting what they called it in the animated, in, in the movie though now, because I think it had a different name. Justice League War? No. No, no, it wasn't that. But it, the, the, the comic that's adapting is which takes place later in this run is Tower of Babel where Batman's plans for how to take down the Justice League get stolen by Lex Luthor and company. Um, Justice League Doom. That's the name of yes, it. Yes, that's it. You're right. Before yeah. people uh, comment and everything. Um, which one of my favorite the animated movies that, that, that's been made by DC. And... And I love how even like that kind of idea of Batman having contingency plans for every member of the Justice League. And I love even in um, Jeff Johns's writing of the Justice League in the New Fifty Two, where I forget who he was showing around the Batcave, and he was showing where he keeps all of his files for what he needs to defeat each member of the Justice League. And how does he? De- where does he keep this stuff for Cyborg? On paper in a file cabinet. That's lead lined. <laughs> well, that just makes total sense. Uh, I had to. I had to confirm um, that Tower of Babel is writ- that that story is written by Mark Wade, but it is part of the same Justice League vo- volume. This is back when they would a new writer would come on board and they would not just restart it with a number one. Marvel's notorious for that. DC is better about it, but still, it's a lot more common nowadays. But back then, they would just have the next writer start with the next issue. Um, 
So this, I mean, that's that's per, that's pretty deep into this volume of JLA, but it's definitely a great story. I mean, it has one of the most iconic covers in Justice League history, where it's just Batman standing, and it's all the other members mm-hmm. of the league yes. at, dead at his feet. And I remember when I was first getting into reading comics, I I was going through the checklist of like the top twenty five Batman stories to read. Uh, by IGN.com. That's the reason why I read Dark Knight Returns as my first comic book. Um, oh, did your, good lord. Did you... I don't know if I knew that. That was your first comic book? Yes, that's the first one that I personally read that I bought oh. with my own money. <laughs> wow, that's... What a heck of a way to get introduced to Batman. Right, no, like, I was just about to say, like, I don't know if that the jury is still out, if that was a good idea or not to do that. I... I would vote not, but... I mean, how are you supposed to know any different? I mean, if if they say top 25, was that number one on the list? Yes, it was. Right. So that's why you read it first. I, I, I get, I totally get why you would. It's just, wow. Like that's one of those things. Like if someone came to me and said, I've never read a Batman comic in my life, where should I start? That is not where I would start them. No, but with that subject in hand, where would you have them start? Just in your opinion. Yeah, that's. I, I would have to put some thought into it. Um, I I don't have an I don't have a good answer off the top of my head for that. Um, I probably I think I would probably start maybe maybe more like in the era of a death a death in the family. You know when Jason Todd was killed. Maybe maybe that era is around when I would say let's start you off here and then maybe get to uh, and then get to a lonely place a dying. Only place of dying. I'm wow. Uh, when Tim Drake, you know, first came in the picture, maybe that era of Batman. I think. I think is what I would choose. I, but I, let's just say, don't hold me to that because I'd actually I would want to put more thought into that question. That's fair. And uh, fun fact: I only just read A Lonely Place of Dying for the first time about a month ago. Huh. I uh, I first read it in Hawaii when I bought it from a bookstore when I was in Hawaii. Huh. I mean, it was much more than a month ago, though. Right. <laughs> it was a long time ago. Because like, the thing is, like, I had read actually. My friend has, I think, a first printing of the first trade printing of a Death in the Family, and uh, like m- most Death in the Family trade paperbacks you get these days have a lonely place of dying tacked on. Mm-hmm. And I remember I was in Chicago at the beginning of the year, and I was like. I asked my friend, who I would later meet up for the first time later that day, um, hey, is there any good comic book stores around where I'm going to be staying? He's like, oh, yeah, check this place out. So I went in there. I didn't find what I was looking for, but I saw that. And I'm like, you know what? I've been meaning to get this. And I skimmed through it to see if it had um, a lonely place of dying. I'm like, okay, now I have a reason to read the story again, The Death in the Family. And it, it's just funny because I had read – Tim Drake's like solo run, like I'm on like volume four of the trades of Tim Drake's solo run. I never actually read the very first issue of it. I never read A Lonely Place of Dying. So it kind of makes sense. Me going back to it, I'm like, oh, okay. I understand why this story is so revered to this day. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, I, I think that happens a lot of times, you know. It's hard. I mean, it's harder to start at the beginning, right? If someone says, start me with Batman, I'm not going to go back, you know, to the very first Batman comic book ever, right? I'm not, that's not where I'm going to start them. And so it, I think it's easy to be just fall into a character. And these characters have such a long and rich history 
arguably the only good way to start is to just pick up a book and read it. And if you kind of enjoy it, read the next one. And you'll figure it out as you go. It's like, you know, uh, Cosmic Odyssey, I didn't read until the first time within the last year. and But I knew the highlights of it, and I knew the big things that happened in it with Jon Stewart because I had learned what happened to him there through the Green Lantern book. And it, like that's the kind of thing that happens. It's like when you need to know something, the better writers will tell you what you need to know to understand the story they're doing and then move on. And if you want to go back and find it, that's wonderful. But I, I kind of feel like you just you just pick a recent place to maybe don't start with issue three of a six-part story, but you go back far enough to find issue one of a six-part story, and then you start from there. I, 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 I did the same thing. I had read several several Tim Drake books before I ever read that. I knew that I had the gist of the story, but I had never read it until I was looking for a comic to buy. And that's the one I came across. And so I said, yes, I will read this story now. Very nice. And hot take, uh, Tim Drake's the best Robin. Okay. And I I don't hear any fault with that. I mean, that's objective, right? Yeah, I think so. And we're speaking (laughs) like, (laughs) that's how this thing works on the internet. We speak opinions and they automatically become fact. They become fact. Tim Drake is the best Robin. Other Robins are good Robins. Tim Drake is the best. End of story. And I, uh, Brent, can you stand in front of me right here? Just right in this place for a little <laughs> bit right here. Right in his axe. I think I'm going to step to the side. <laughs> uh, you see, like, this is when, like, my wily Coyote uh, contraption backfires, and I'm the one crushed by the giant boulder. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> beep, beep. And so the fourth issue, JLA New, York, New Order, cover date of April 1997 but on sale date of February 5th 1997 and cover price of $1.95 and same the same credits of the past three issues title Invaders from Mars and Invaders from Mars also based on a movie from uh, the same name from 1953 and the synopsis is although greatly weakened Superman begins to deduce that the Hyperclan max members are actually Martians as such, he determines that the green kryptonite is not that's crippling him is just a psychic projection with psychochromatic consequences. Breaking through the mental program, the Superman regains his strength and bursts free of his restraints. While Superman and protests go toe to toe, the rest of the Hyperclan's plan quickly falls apart. This is when the Martian Manhunter finally reveals himself. He's been rascaring his arm tech ever since the League were first captured. The real arm tech is still out in the desert with Zoom. The Manhunter deactivates the Flower of Wrath and takes care of Primate. The rest of the League uh, revive and blast their way through the top of the tower to the, onto the surface. Flash sets up a ring of candles around Armic, uh, allowing Green Lantern a chance to knock him out with their uh, arm tech with a, a ring generated of 16 ton of weight. Zoom tries to take out Aquaman, mistaking believe he'd be easy prey. However, Aquaman uses his telepathy to affect Zoom, uh, uh, a part of his brain because he came from marine ancestors, giving him his seizure, ultimately inca- incapacitating him. Wonder Woman takes Primate to the sky, locked together in combat. Wonder Woman ensnares her in the last of truth, forcing Primate to assume her martial shape. She then power dives back to the surface and knocks Primate out. Superman continues to fight against Protex, Heat Vision versus Martian Vision, Proving pointless, and Protex tries to cocoon Superman within a malleable form. Superman drills deep into the earth while Protex then lays out a good old-fashioned haymaker. And he finally lays him out with a good old-fashioned haymaker. 
While all this is going on, Batman manages to capture a mortal and centurion. It brings him to the center of the Citadel where the other unconscious HyperClan members have been deposited. Although they've defeated the HyperClan, they still have a Martian invasion to deal with. Protex has already alerted the Martian armada to leave the safe zone and begin to begin attacking Earth from Zone Zar. Superman broadcasts a global message to the citizens of Earth. He tells them that they're dealing with and how to defeat them. The people of Earth, he, Superman's inspired message of courage and band together to repel the Martian invaders with one of the elements that anybody has control over, fire. The Martians are forced to retreat and back into the still zone. With the threat of an alien invasion allevi- alleviated, the Martian Mantor uses his powers to, powers to lobotomize the HyperClan. He forces them to zoom a humanoid, humanoid shapes and sends them back into the population, where they can now exist as productive members of the human race. Though bereft of their Martian identities, each one of them feels as if they're now uh, something is missing in their lives. Now the JLA are officially reformed. They begin a new base of operations. They use the wreckage of the old Justice League satellite to create their own citadel on the moon. And now the Justice League has the Watchtower. So, Brent, your feelings on the final issue in this arc? Stuck the landing, to, to sum it up. You know, Superman had referenced to products that Batman was the most dangerous man alive. And at the time, it kind of reads, it's like, oh, part of that's because of the intelligence, this Batman's intelligence. He figured out who they were. Uh, you know, we find out that John knew who they were, but he had insider information. Uh, but Kyle, Wally, Diana, Arthur, none of them realized who they are. I like that Superman figured it out on his own. He technically got himself out. Nobody actually rescued him. And so I really like how he did that. And looking at the, uh, I think it's the second page there. Yeah, the second page, just the horror on Protex's face when he he realizes Superman figured it out. He knows. And I, I just a really great way to start off the issue, I think. And I love seeing him have, like, think back just, you know, a couple issues ago when Superman was defeated, right? And he's dragging him through the snow, and this is, like, the inverse of that. And great start to this one. Yeah, and I love that silhouetted panel of Superman breaking himself free, and the only uh, speech bubble says, you're Martians! And that's what begins their kind of final toe-to-toe that Superman and Protex have. And I love the moment. It is childish, but seeing Green Lantern conjure up a 16-ton block labeled 16-ton to drop on an enemy because I'm a fan of Looney Tunes. I love seeing stuff like that happen to bad guys. Absolutely. Absolutely. And even later on when the rest of the is looking up to the sky to see what Wonder Woman's doing and Kyle conjures up a telescope to see what's going on there. Just like little flourishes mm-hmm. like that I really mm-hmm. enjoy. Yeah, Kyle was great for those little those little touches. He really, to him, like he he had no qualms with using his ring to make his life easier. And oh, I can't see. I'm just gonna make that a little easier. This this issue has so many cool panels in it. Um, one of them is on that same page with the telescope of Wonder Woman. You know, taking her out and just uh, taking out Primate and just uh, in the natural white Martian form. A um, few pages back, there's a pretty cool, like, big, like, half page or half splash panel of Wonder Woman, Flash, Aquaman, and Green Lantern as they're all kind of coming together. And then we definitely got to see some. There's this one where Martian Manhunter uh, 
reveals himself that he's used his own shape-shifting ability to kind of be a mole. And I like how they showed the shape-changing with, like, the different little pieces of himself reforming to his traditional form. Just some – I mean, I like the art all throughout, but this this book, like, this issue has some really standout pages in my opinion. And it definitely seems that Porter is making every panel count that – it almost seems like there was a guideline to say every panel should be a splash page. Like everything should be something that could be on a cover here. Now that could make the special moments kind of dull by comparison. Cause like everything special, nothing is, but I have to agree that and just seeing the confidence and the, po- the, the posture of Martian Manhunter when he reformed himself and say like, yeah, I was here the whole time and you guys didn't know it. And the, the, the pride he has in that moment there is really enjoyable. Yeah, absolutely. It's 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 nice to – I mean, how often does John really get a moment where he can show some pride? So that's definitely a great a great spot to see it. You know, there's another one when uh, Flash puts candles around um, – I'm brain farting on his name right now, but Flash eats – certain circles him with candles and says your move and <laughs> Kyle just drops a like a 15 ton weight on him he just says low quality finish lantern it's like even when they're working together and they work together well they rib each other I love that so much I love the relationship that Kyle Rayner has with Wally West yeah, exactly because it, like it's just it's it's seeding the ideas that these two will become friends later on and it, it and I think the one, the best thing about Kyle Rayner when it comes to this iteration of the league is that he is the audience member. He is us. He's the reader when it comes to Justice League because he's the newest one. People, he's the newest member of the group, so he's kind of like our in into this story. That's a really good way to put it. But he is, he is the everyman. You know, he. When when they created him, they were kind of looking for someone to fit that Peter Parker type uh, tone or role of the just the everyman, like with real real problems and like real person, like has a real life and doesn't always have his stuff together. And obviously, uh, you, you know how much I love the Peter Parker character. That's probably part of what drew me to Kyle Rayner to begin with, but or just picking up on some of that, but. Just re- I, I'm going to end up probably having to read a little bit more of this <laughs> run just because I love seeing Kyle interact with these characters. And he just ha- hasn't been around that much in the last few years. I mean, he's not dead or anything in the comics. He just hasn't really had any big part to play lately. And so I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I needed some Kyle. I needed some Kyle. So this was nice. I mean, he's hanging out at the same place with all the other Peter Parker of the DC Universe, Tim Drake. Yeah, I... You know, you're not the first person I've heard to say that. I don't know if I would fully agree with it, but I understand the comparison. And well, regardless, Tim Drake, again, is the best Robin, so that's fine. Well, you think of, like, especially in the Dixon run of Drake's... Uh, wow, I just said I just said his last name. Like, no, I'm not, I just... That just kind of validate his new persona? No, his new name is dumb. I'm sorry. I'm a Brian Michael Bendis fan. I... I there's far more of the guy's work that I like that I don't, but I'm sorry. The Drake name is dumb. And I, no. Great character. The costume, I could have been okay with if it had been like an issue, but no, it's his new costume. So he gave him the stupid puke brown costume and the name Drake. Are you kidding me? No. 
even if there wasn't a successful rapper of the name the same name, it still would be a dumb name. They I mean, did not give it to him because of the rapper. I know, I know, but like even still, it's like it's also the same kind of thought process of making Rick Grayson there. It's just like it I is. Can't, I can't condone Rick Grayson either. No, that's no, absurd. No, it it it, it it's, is to quote Christian Bale in the Prestige is predictable. It's boring. And the reason why I make the comparison between Tim Drake and Peter Parker, especially in the Dixon run, he has a hard time balancing his home life with his superhero life. Like how his father wants to be more involved with his life after his mother passes away. Or him trying to have a regular uh, relationship with Ariana at first. And how that's that really does not go the way uh, he wants it to in the long run. And oh, things of that not. nature. Man, I, you're, you're absolutely right. I will I will accept your explanation of that comparison, and I'm just thinking, man, it's been a long time since I've read Chuck Dixon's run on Robin, but he, I mean, it's such a good run. Chuck Chuck Dixon's work with the back characters, his Nightwing, his his Robin. There's an issue of Nightwing where it's just him and Robin teaming up for a night. It's it's, it's just Dick, it's Tim. They team up. They you know they take out some bad guys. They train on some on some trains they do training exercises on some trains let me let me clarify that a little bit i dixon's dixon's work on these on the back characters as we go down this tangent is so good i mean he, he has one of my favorite set pieces in any comic book story in a nightwing book where he's nightwing's fighting a goon in a mobile trailer that gets taken lift off by a helicopter and they go tumbling out one of the windows of it and it just looks it's staged beautifully even if the McDaniel art is a little much to some people, to modern eyes anyway. And I'm not sure if this is with Dixon or not, but there's a moment. <clears throat> it's one of my favorite moments between Dick Grayson and Bruce Wayne or Dick Grayson or Nightwing and Batman where it's the second attempt that Bane's trying to kill Batman in Gotham City, but this time without Venom. And he's using this, this barge with a nuke on and he's going to destroy the city unless he faces Batman again. And he has to go past Bloodhaven in order to get to Gotham. So Nightwing jumps onto the barge and trying to defeat Bane hand-to-hand. It's not going well. And Nightwing's on the ropes, but he's still going to try and fight him. And it's a close-up panel of Nightwing just, like, wiping blood from his lips. He's like, all right, let's go again. And then you just see one black glove land on on Nightwing's shoulder. And he says, uh, he's like, settle down, son. And you pull out, it's Batman, and he's going to face off against uh, Bane again. And it's just like... In that one moment, you just you sum up the entire relationship between Dick Grayson and Bruce Wayne right there, and it's beautiful. Yeah, it, it, Tim Drake is the best Robin, again. But Dick Grayson, for me, is definitely next in line for that title. And such a good character, and I love the the relationship that Batman has with him. And, you know, I, I think it's during that run of Nightwing. I don't remember if it was Dixon or when another writer had came on, but where Batman formally adopted him because he had never formally adopted Dick Grayson. And then, you know, eventually he does formally adopt Tim Drake as well. And all these people like thugs and stuff. Oh, is Batman your dad? No, he's not my dad. Well, now he kind of is. And it, it's so awesome. And I love the sibling, sibling relationship that Dick and, that Dick and Tim have with each other 
and of course, I know Jason Todd is back now, but during this time, Jason Todd was very much alive. He was, you know, at this point, there was still, there were a few comic book characters that they died and they were staying dead, and Jason Todd was one of them. And it, I, I never had the same affection for Jason Todd, presumably because when in my, in my formative years of reading comic books, it was all about Dick Grayson and Tim Drake. And... I mean, just wonderful characters as we go down this tangent of this timeline. I, I know the 90s takes a bad rap for, uh, I mean, for a lot of things in the comics, and some of it's justified, but, man, there is some great stuff in there, too. I agree, and a few things. One, um, I feel like there's not a lot of collected stories of Jason Todd as Robin. I mean, you have Batman the Cult which hints at things that will come to fruition in Batman Death in the Family. But you don't have, like, a lot of stuff is collected in trade. It's still an individual issue, so you can go back and find. But not a lot of those stories are popping to my mind at the moment. I could be mistaken. I have not read everything. So please see your tweets if there's stories that I don't know of. And B, if it wasn't Chuck Dixon writing the, the Bat books, it's probably Doug Mensch uh, filling in for him. It's probably one of the one of those two writers writing the Bat books in the 1990s. Yeah, they definitely were both on there. And, you know, I was thinking about it. With Jason Todd, I don't know if I've ever read a Jason Todd pre-crisis book, but my understanding is, is he was basically a Dick Grayson clone. And I don't mean, like, in the literal clone sense that you can get in comic books but I mean they they just made another character identical to what Dick Grayson was pre-crisis then they changed him into the post-crisis version that most people are familiar with now you know stealing the hubcaps or whatever off the Batmobile and then caught and then he's taken in and then oh he goes crazy and loses his cool and is killed by the Joker trying to find his mother and so I just I haven't read a ton of Jason Todd as Robin. Most of what I've read of Jason Todd was actually, you know, well, it was really after he was teased to come back in Hush, which wasn't actually him. And then later you find out, oh, it kind of sort of was actually him through. I want to say it was Judd Winnick, um, but it kind of sort of was him behind the scenes. And it was like one of those retcon of a retcon deals. But most of my Jason Todd reading has he in one way or the other. He's been a version of the Red Hood. He's been anti-hero at best and probably a villain more often than not. And so I, I think that's why I don't have as much affection for the character. And you're right. I mean, pre-crisis Jason is nearly a clone of him. I think he was like acrobat and all. And he looked just like Dick Grayson. And so I understand the changes for the post-crisis and I enjoy that. But also reading back late eighties and early nineties, uh, Batman art is, it's so funny to see how bruce wayne's hair is technically blue but it's supposed to be black but they kind of color it blue to make it look like it stand out from the background and everything right but now that we've gotten so far into the weeds back here I'm <laughs> we, t- we've definitely gone on some tangents I, I think below us is jimmy hoffa so i think we should back <laughs> up and and so going back to what you're saying about the jla i love the moment here that that panel you're talking about all the you have aquaman green lantern one woman and the flash standing there and i love the moment because is Martian Manhunter being told that like you're 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 just a freak and to them that you you'll be nothing to them that you're you're always an outsider and and he says where are your friends now? This one white Martian says before he's about to kill Martian Manhunter and it says and then we hear off panel right right where we always are 
right here and it's his friend mm-hmm. standing there to defend him and I've always loved that moment there that no matter what they're going to accept Martian Manhunter for exactly who he is yeah that's a gr- it's a great moment it it's a great Calvary moment and it, frankly it would be a great theatrical cinematic moment like it just the, the storyboards are right here just make this movie definitely how do you feel about the epilogue where the white Martians are their memories are pretty much wiped and they believe they're human living on earth um i i i love it uh remind me to go back to the last couple pages prior to that but i love the epilogue i thought it was really clever if you remember superman tells john basically it has to be your choice and john says we have methods you may not like them and at the time the first time reading it i assumed john was going to kill them all and then you find out this where it's almost merciful to an extent of he left them alive he just took away their memories of who they really were. Okay, I guess that's kind of a type of death. Have you read more of this run, of this JLA run, beyond these issues? Yes, I think I got up all the way to Prometheus invading the Watchtower. Oh, there's... I would encourage you to go farther. But I will just tell you, there is an issue later down the line where this circles back up. Because one of the Martians starts to... Uh, get their memories back and they sort of they sort of change a little bit like they take on a different identity than the one they were given and I'm almost hesitant to say who it was just because if if somebody listening to this does want to go out there and read it I would rather not spoil that for them but it, it is the identity of a known DC character and I'll leave it at that and so it is pretty I, I like the way they actually brought, circled back to this and brought back this up and it, it wasn't just this forgotten thing the white martians are out there now i'm totally cool with it nice and uh final thoughts on this issue and this little four issue arc overall uh great justice league moment that i wanted to mention at the a few pages back like before the epilogue of basically superman saying uh, superman and wonder woman they're all just kind of talking you know how much are we supposed to be doing for them? Them being the humans, the the everyday people, civilians. And there's this great moment when Flash says, but if what she's saying, if that's what she's saying, if that, what, what's the point? Why are they here? Why do they need us? And Superman just says to catch them if they fall. It Maybe it's a little kind of, a little bit of a corny line or a cheesy line, but it's always, always stuck out to me that like that was, pinnacle superman he's not here to do everything for humans he's just there to help out and give a little boost when and if it's needed and i think that perfectly exemplifies what superman is that he it certainly does to me yeah and that he's always supposed to be the symbol of hope and optimism and he knows that he can't do everything and he can't be there to save everybody but he will kill himself trying to do so that because he believes humanity is worth it. And I think that's what I think he's that's why I find Superman so inspiring that I think everybody can do that. And I think that's why I love the ending of this book so well so much is because, yes, they the Justice League defeats the, the hyper clan and uh, a 
I don't think the, I don't think anybody should trust a group whose last, second syllable of their name is clan. I think that should have been like a, a red flag right there. It's like, uh, you guys don't sound like good guys anyway. But, yeah, yeah. Um, but I think the the best part about this book is that it's humanity that saves themselves. It's not a bunch of superheroes coming in swiping at all the the remaining seventy or or. 63 other Martians that are all over the earth. That's humanity that does it themselves, that they're able to light fire one of the most elemental things that's part of human um, history is humanity's relationship with fire. And that's something that, that's with... It's two things that Morrison is, is likes to do. One, the reason why he wanted the these seven characters specifically because he wanted to relate them to the seven Greek gods that they're supposed to be related to, and he wanted to make them most this Justice League the most elemental, the most primordial form that they could actually be. That's why it's the classic lineup. Sure, it's different iterations of some of these characters, but it's still the seven characters. And like I mentioned before, Wisecrack's um, deep dive into the philosophy of Grant Morrison, why I. I, I'm gravitating to his storytelling is that because in his, if you look at the overview of all of his work there, that the human, the we, we are, humanity is their own form of gods because we can read comics and we can jump out of time and see different timelines of when stories are happening. We could pause it, we can speed through it or anything like that. And that we have such great powers and we're able to create stories that, that can affect people hundreds of years down the line that even though we may not have super strength or we can fly or have heat vision, that humans can do so many great things and are that they have almost unlimited potential within their individual means. And I love how this book exemplifies that with its humanity saving themselves there. And I find that to be a really hopeful thing because... There's so many comic book artists or comic book creators that are very dour and very negative where it could just be life is bullshit and your, and your funny books are not going to help you. And I think Grant Morrison is, is an eternal optimist. Sure, a lot of stories can be really messed up at times, but I think overall his message he tries to come out there is that you are capable of anything if you put your mind to it. And that's why I really enjoy his writing and i love how this this book ends on a, in a message of hope even if it sounds kind of corny i i mean i can't disagree with anything you just said there and i know i sound harsh when grant morrison comes up and at this point it's a uh, it's almost it's just a bad running joke with with my co-host ray on fans without borders and it's just but when the man is on i just think morrison is great and for all of my conflicting opinions about his writing, these four issues basically are my favorite Justice League story in comics. Like, there are other great ones. There are other stories that I absolutely love. So many of them in this run, in this volume of JLA. But the pinnacle of the Justice League for me is these four issues. And so that was why when you brought up these, I was like, yes, okay, I'm in for that because it's been far too long since I've given these for another look and I'm very happy to do so. And I was very happy to do so when I read them the other day. It's just, it's such great 
writing, the, the understanding that he has of these characters, I feel, at least at this moment in time when he wrote this book, and at least to me, it is like the truest sense of who these characters are. In my opinion, I know other people are going to disagree with that, but to me, like this is the truest sense of who Superman is and who Batman is and Green Lantern and so on. And I love what he did with it. And he actually, he expands the book, the roster fairly quickly. The next issue is a recruitment drive. And just to really give you a, a, a moment in time, the next issue, the next, you know, the next part of the next story is electric Superman when he's the blue energy being right. And so like that really tells you when this was all taking place. But even then he still just, he gets who Superman is and he, he gets who Superman is in a way, not in a way that no other writer has, but few other writers have at least who Superman is to me. And I, I just, I adore this run and I know like someone would be like, you, you hate Grant Morrison. It's like, no, it's, it's, I'm conflicted about Grant Morrison. He, it's a red flag today, but it was not such a thing then. And I definitely wasn't following writers and stuff the same way. I couldn't tell you who probably at that point who wrote most of the books I had read. I could maybe give you in some names, but I couldn't necessarily tell you all of them. And at that point, Morrison was a name I had seen, but I didn't know a ton about him. All I knew was this Justice League cover stood out to me on the stands, and it was a four-issue story. It was a complete story, and I just fell in love with it. And to this day, my love for that book remains. Very nice. And I hope I didn't unintentionally guilt-tripped you with my, me waxing poetically how much I meant this Grant Morrison means to me no, or anything. No, because I, will, I have no problem telling you I, Green Lantern's one of my favorite franchises in comics, and I couldn't read because Morrison was on it. I hate Final Crisis that Morrison was on. I will never... If you would ask me to read Final Crisis, I would have said, forget that. I'm having no part of it. You did, No, I have no problem telling my honest opinions about stuff, and you love Grant Morrison's work at least more often than not. That's wonderful. He's had a super long, super successful career, tons of things, decades worth of work for you to enjoy. I'm just not going to keep enjoying all of it, especially <laughs> not today. I'm just, I'm honest. And you know, there's I, the way that I feel about Bendis's writing. I mentioned earlier that I'm a big fan of Bendis. There's just as many people that the way I feel about Morrison conflicted at best, they feel the same way about Bendis or even worse. They hate his writing. I get it. That's fine. No big deal because to me, like maybe they hate the way like Bendis is on the Superman books right now. Maybe they hate the way Bendis handles Superman. And I will tell you while I like those books, his Superman is not as good as the Superman we just talked about for the last however long it's been, hour and a half or whatever. It's not it's not as good of a Superman as that. And But there's characters that I think Bendis, the handle that he has on them is better than anybody's. And that's fine. Like, it's, it's totally fine. So I am very happy for people who enjoy Grant Morrison's work because – the man is a comics legend. I understand that he's not going anywhere until he's ready to go somewhere. So enjoy his work while it keeps coming out. I've heard good things about green lantern right now. I've heard things that have even kind of made me, you know, give a second look and like, ah, maybe I need to go back into it. I just, I haven't quite, 
I feel like I need to get in a headspace for modern 2018, 2019, 2020 Grant, Mar- Grant Morrison before I can go back into that. So get a prescription for Molly and then <laughs> and then take some and then read some like <laughs> get like lendicotal covers like there would just be like in 3D but it's like whoa you're, you're just like you're running your hand over the, the panels like I could feel the story man. Uh, <laughs> like like the 90s covers for all the speculators. <laughs> <laughs> And yes, I think Morrison gets Superman. He he obviously had, later on had write one of the greatest stories that Superman ever had, an All Star Superman. And one of the panels I always think of when I think of Superman is in that storyline of Clark revealing himself to be Superman to Lois and how he's drawn to be like the kind of the schlubby person. And all of a sudden he stands up straight and he says Lois, and he takes off his glasses, kind of mirroring the moment in Superman the movie. But, yeah, it, it is very curious here. And well, if you don't... Do you want to know the tragic thing about how much I feel Grant Morrison understands Superman in these books in this time period? Mm-hmm. Do, do you know who wrote Action Comics during the New 52? No. Grant Morrison. And I hated it. <laughs> I just hated it. It became the standard by which me and... and my friend Brock, uh, Marvel Squadcast co-host, at the time, we both hated it so much. It was the standard by which we graded bad books. Was it still better than action, at least? Ah, it wasn't even better than action. What a terrible read. Ah, at least it's better than action. <laughs> like, I just hated it. And it's not lost on me that it was Grant Morrison. It was Superman. Listen to what I just said about him in JLA. you think I would have loved it. It just didn't work for me. And as polarizing of a writer as he is, he's that polarizing with me personally. Hmm. I was wondering if it was one of those things where like, okay, it was a mandate by the new 52 to do something different. And he was given uh carte blanche. Well, it certainly felt that way. I don't, I mean, he, if you've seen the images of Superman wearing jeans, the Superman shirt, and then the Cape, it's from that run. I don't know who came up with that idea. I assume Morrison did. I I did not like it. And it was, if if we're being honest, part of it was probably, I didn't, I wasn't, I wasn't a huge fan of the new 52. And I think it failed in a lot of ways of what it was trying to do. I know it's got its fans. I know people came in to DC comics through the new 52. I totally am familiar with that concept. I get it. It's kind of how I am a star Wars where I'm far more interested in the Disney era star Wars than I ever was before. I, I get the concept because I know there's people who hate what continuity got thrown away by Disney era star Wars from the legend stuff. I like, I understand there. It's just for me, it didn't work. And it's just so funny because it's like here in the mid nineties, the man understood who Superman was and then when the new 52 came out in 2011, I hated it. I just hated it. And eh, is what it is, I guess. Maybe it's just because it was encroaching on Superboy's outfit. No, that is Superboy's worst outfit. <laughs> he can have it. Morrison <laughs> Superman can have that outfit. I hate that outfit for Superboy. It's a t-shirt and jeans. Uh, it's his most recognizable look. And, of course, people are like, oh, what's, what outfit do you think Superboy will have in the Titans? Obviously, he's going to have the one that's the cheapest and easiest for them to make. Uh, no. 90s Superboy costume all the way. Or the costume later that he had super late in Superboy's run, like close to the end, that was a far better costume. 
even Superboy's New 52 costume, which it was not the same Superboy, let's be honest. At least it was like, oh, the jeans and the t-shirt. I hate that look. And if you hated Final Crisis, you would have hated the the end of the original five pl- movie plan with Justice League 3 if Snyder got his way. Um, with- really? <laughs> really? You want to bring that up? <laughs> I mean, it, it was the last episode I did in the show here. I mean... Batman would have created a God-killing gun, and he would have died know, at the end. I know. Um, I will just respectfully say I did not like the plans that Snyder had and leave it at that. Yes. I mean, yeah. I mean, like, like if we want to talk about silly comic book moments, we got to talk about Superboy saying, I'll kill you to death at one point. <laughs> uh, I think that's Countdown to 52. Probably in that range. Ugh, oh, skin just crawled at that. Yeah, Superboy, he's been through some stuff, but, you know, earlier I referenced Kyle Rayner as one of my two favorite DC characters. Connell, Connor Kent, that is that is my other one. It's it, People are like, well, who's your favorite DC character? I'm like, I don't know. It's one of these two. One of these two. There's like, they've met a handful of times, and when Ron Mars was writing Green Lantern, he had a crossover with Superboy idol worship. I believe it was called. It was two parts, one in each person's book. And man, I love that story so much. And it's like, it's to my knowledge, the only team up of just those two characters, but I love it. (laughs) Awesome. But before we ramble on even further into the wee hours, the morning here, we'll wrap this up. Now, Brent, uh, where can people find you on social media and your podcast? If they're unaware of you, uh, yeah. Uh, Podcast-wise, if you go to squadcastmedia.com, that's probably the easiest way to find it. I co-host both Fans Without Borders, uh, which is a weekly show, and Marvel Squadcast, which is uh, eh, roughly every three-ish week show. It's just kind of a little more chill, not always necessarily about the news, but sometimes it's just about what comics have we been reading or what uh, watching Avengers Earth Mightiest Heroes and going through that. So squadcastmedia.com, uh, social um Twitter, Brintac Prime is really it. I technically have an Instagram now, but I don't use it, if I'm being honest. So if you want to actually reach out and tell me how crazy I am, uh, that would be Brintac Prime on Twitter. And I remember, I think, one of the first episodes of Marvel Squadcast, he's saying that um, you know that at least one of your co-hosts on Squadcast Media people exist because you've met Brock in person. Yes, but- Brock was in my wedding. Like, oh. We roomed together in college. But we this all could be illusion. This could all be a figment of our imagination in the Matrix. We don't know if Brock or any of us exist. Well, I, I can't speak to that. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> you know, up until relatively recently, none of us had met each other in person. And now Tim and Jordan have. Um, uh, Tim was traveling for work, and they've met in person. And then, you know, with Brock joining on, he it's like, oh, well, somebody finally knows each other. Brock, you know, he lives about 45 minutes away or so. He, like, when he, if he doesn't have to work, he'll come into town. And he's been to so many of the movies, of the comic book movies with me. Like, he's been right there by my side for the first time experiencing some of my absolute most favorite movies. Which is fantastic. I mean, that's the reason why I kicked around that idea a couple years ago. Like, I would love to have... Do a small convention in Chicago between the Squadcast media people and the real fans and another podcast network that we're all fan that I'm a fan of as well, and they're Chicago based. So we'd all meet in person and maybe meet some of the listeners and what have you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, Chicago's a cool place. I actually had my honeymoon there. My wife loves Chicago. Um, 
And, you know, if something like that were happening, her only stipulation would be she wants to come too. That's totally fair. I figure it's a centralized city. I think where wherever you are in the country, I think it's it's the probably the easiest place to be able to get to. Oh yeah, it's it's super easy to get to. But if you want to be, if people want to follow me on social media and yell at me for all my bad pronunciations of people's names and butchering of the English language, you can find me on Twitter at Timothy Rooney Two, my Instagram at T Rooney Ten Twelve. My other podcast, Please Rewind, the RF Forum Retro Show, part of the Real Fans 4 Real Movies uh, Network. You can go to rfforum.com and check out that show and all the other shows are part of the Real Fans Network, as well as my YouTube channel, Through the Lens Productions, where my latest short film, Chased, is up. You can find links to all the social media and stuff like that in the description below. And I want to say, Brent, thank you for taking time out of your night to talk uh, JLA with me. Absolutely. Genuinely glad that we were able to work this out. So uh, thank you for the absolute fun idea of a comic book to revisit. Of course. And we're going to have to do this again real soon. We just got to find something else that we can commonly uh, geek out about for nearly two hours. I, I'm i with you. Let, let, it, let me know what, what ideas you got and we'll, uh, we'll talk. All right. So come back next time. Uh, if you don't want to miss an episode, subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. Uh, leave us a five-star written review on iTunes. It really helps get the word out there. And we'll be back next time to continue to talk about Geek of All Culture, and we'll speak to you soon.